Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome. We're in session three of COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery powered by the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco in partnership with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the University of California, San Francisco Department of Orthopedics. We're also joined by the American Telemedicine Association and the OREF, the Orthopedic Research Education Foundation. So we're very excited by these partnerships. This session is titled Ramping Up, and uh, if only we're like flipping a switch, as many people have already noticed, it's much easier to stop the machine than to get it going again. Uh, a lot of questions come up as how to go about doing this, and so we're joined today by Dr. Bruce Cohen, the CEO at Ortho Carolina, a large and very well-known independent academic orthopedic specialty group with over 400 providers of serving North and South Carolina. Uh, Dr. Cohen is also the president-elect of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, so we're excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Andy Miller, right next to him, he is the CEO of a uh, smaller practice. We thought we'd bring in different perspectives. He has a 15-person practice in Santa Clara, Ortho North Cal, so thank you for joining us, Andy. And right now, I'm going to bring in our last guest, Dr. Tom Barber. And uh, many of you know Tom as well. Tom currently is serving as Associate Deputy Physician-in-Chief of Preoperative Services at Memorial Sloan Kansas Center, but has a very long and storied history in the world of orthopedics and has a lot of insights, many of which uh, we're excited to share because he was in New York uh, during the entire COVID crisis and uh, as it peaked and has a lot of learnings from that. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Awesome. All right, so the format today is that I'm going to just lay out some questions, some thoughts, some problems that everybody seems to be handling, and hear how each of you is, is managing them and how you're thinking about it. We may or may not hear from each and every one of every question, just so we get through it, and then we'll take questions from the audience. So for those of you in the audience, feel free to start adding questions in the Ask a Question section at the bottom of the screen. The idea there is uh, looking at practice issues, things that you're worried about in terms of starting back up again. So let's start a little bit with testing. Now, earlier this morning, we heard from Brian about the, uh, the science around testing. Bruce, what are you doing around testing for patients now who are coming in for surgery? So at all of our facilities, both inpatient and outpatient, we are requiring testing Testing is done within three days prior to the procedure. For our outpatient facilities, we're asking the patients to self-quarantine as well. So what we're doing, uh, testing basically for all patients, we're requesting the self-quarantine for five days or so before the procedure. Obviously, compliance to that is going to be a little bit questionable, but patients are self-reporting that. Tom and Andy, any difference from that? Yeah, um, I think for us, we're doing uh, testing 48 hours in advance. And we found in New York uh, right now about a four and a half percent rate of uh, patients who are asymptomatic coming in that are positive for COVID. And I think the, the second piece that we're dealing with extensively right now is the testing for previously positive patients. So patients that come in that four weeks ago had COVID, 
you know, how do you test those folks? Because a lot of them are ending up being positive for six to eight weeks because of viral RNA fragments and not because of infectious nature. And so what we're doing there is after four weeks, we're considering them free of COVID transmissibility. And so we're not testing four weeks after the initial positive test. And then we're allowing patients that were COVID positive and asymptomatic for more than 10 days to have a negative test 48 hours in advance and still have surgery. So they have to wait 10 days after symptoms and or 10 days after a positive test, have another negative test before surgery, and they could go ahead. So that's our testing routine primarily. Yeah. It's a very interesting problem that you brought up, this idea of the who's testing patients. So, and Andy, we talked earlier, you're, you're seeing some testing of the staff and of, the, of these physicians as well at your hospitals? Inpatient facilities is is requiring testing of the uh, of our surgeons and our assists, our PAs, correct? Tom and, Tom, and, Tom and Bruce, any trace of that in your systems? We are offering testing for all physicians and all staff. We are not requiring it except for those staff who are working on COVID units. So those people that are on COVID units are required to take a routine testing because we had one episode of nosocomial transmission by a staff member. Oh. Um, and so that was one staff member infected about eight patients and other staff. Um, it was not all patients. It was so four patients and four other staff members. So that was a big problem. And then the other thing we're doing is requiring filling out a survey every day before you go to work on symptomatology. And you have to show the app at the door to get in the door, which shows that you're green, meaning that all your questions were answered in a satisfactory manner. So these are chatbots, right? It's not a chatbot. It's a website that was built specifically for us um, with five questions that are, that are asked of the employees. You know, do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? You know, those, yeah. kind of, do, do you have a, a nose, any of those kind of questions. And so um, if they answer yes, then they're not allowed to come to work. So they get a, a screen that basically says, no, you're not allowed to go in and they yeah. have to go see their physician. We have a, we, we use a chatbot technology. It's a little bit snappier, but uh, I'll say Malcolm, uh, either of you guys have screening tools that are technology-based? We do not technology-based. We're doing manual screening, asking the questions, temperature checks. We are not testing for surgery or even for the office. We're not testing our staff or providers. Got it. We just don't right. have access to it. Yeah, we're not um, testing our office staff either. Um, we yeah. just, just uh, have left that uh, as it is for now. But if we need to escalate, we're prepared to do so. So we I think a big to... change for us, Steph, is we're moving to saliva-based testing as opposed to, um, you know, Doing the big brain biopsy, yes, you know, type of uh, thing. <laughs> just the swab through the back of your head. <laughs> the swab that goes way That's up so there. unpleasant. Um, yeah, we, so I want to switch a little bit our... real quick. Let me switch a little bit to the clinic. Are you? We're putting these restrictions into accessing the hospitals, but you were now seeing patients or our clinics are opening up again. Let's talk a little bit about how you manage the patient coming to clinic. First of all, are you letting patients come into the clinic with family members into the office in the back room? Let's start with Andy. Uh, yes, we are. We have uh, full screening at, at, you know, questions at the front desk. We, we have screens at the front, plexiglass screens. In Santa Cruz, in our Santa Cruz office, we are requiring a face mask because that's a county regulation. And we do try to minimize family members going into the treatment rooms with the patients. We encourage them to go out and uh, wait in the cars and, we'll, and we text them if, you know, when we need to contact them. So Bruce, go first. Oh, um, so at all of our offices, we have screening. We screen them on the phone. Then we have in-person screening. 
for every patient. They have to, you know, ask, you know, answer the questions. They get temperature check. Visitors, we have a strict visitor policy. We are restricting visitors unless it's an incapacitated adult or a minor. The remainder of the visitors have to wait outside or in the parking lot. Some will, you know, FaceTime or, or something during the visit. Um, but we're sticking to a pretty strict visitor policy currently. I love the FaceTime idea. I've done that several times. Works great. Tom? Yeah, we're restricting visitors as well. We have no visitors yet. We're just going to start a new New York uh, pilot to have one visitor. Um, but they will also be screened with with questions and, and temperature as well. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, let's talk about prioritization and scheduling patients. When we started, we the Academy put out a one, two, three, four concept where we had the super urgent, people couldn't wait regardless. This is trauma, infections, and cancer. And then you go all the way to four being fully elective. So starting with Bruce in Ortho Carolina. What are you doing in terms of who are you allowing to come to the hospital for surgery at this point? What kind of orthopedic patients? Yeah, so now we're, we're pretty much open to full elective at our outpatient facilities. The inpatient facilities are obviously based on the hospital's policies. But with respect to all electives, with the exception of some of the patients with increased comorbidities who are looking at a much a longer than a two-day stay and a possible SNF stay, those are being screened individually and on a case-by-case basis. So one of our hospital systems is allowing all the tiers, um, and the other is carefully considering the sicker patients and the ones that may either have an extended inpatient stay or look to need a SNF or a rehab stay. We're trying to be very careful with those. And most of those are, as you would know, the you know total joints and probably complex spine. Right. We at UCSF have actually almost gone the other direction. We, we kind of, the complex arthroplasty that really failed implants that weren't infected, wasn't cancer. We're trying to take care of those folks because they seem to be most need. But we definitely seem to be opening up pretty, pretty, pretty normal. Pretty much as long as somebody wants surgery, we can accept them. Tom, anything different in New York that you're hearing? No, the only difference for us is we're a cancer hospital. And so everything is, is cancer. We had to really stopped doing a lot of surgery for a period of time on these urgent patients, uh, which was very unfortunate. But now what's interesting as we're coming back is our demand is down by about 40% because people don't want to come into the city. And so our regional sites actually in Westchester and New Jersey and are doing well, but people don't want to come into New York City right now. And so we're having challenges rebuilding the demand. And it's so we have plenty of capacity. We're wide open for business and we will see people in a very safe manner, but we're not seeing the demand that we did before. So let's definitely come back to the question of demand and safety of the hospitals. But let me get to Andy because you're the private practice guy. Where are what's going on in, in your practices with respect to that question of priority? If you're aware, if you know what you guys are, if you have a threshold for acuity. Yeah, with our with our ASCs, it's pretty much wide open, you know, totally elective. We're seeing doing all its procedures with the hospitals. It kind of like uh, with Bruce, it's it varies. Uh, uh, some of them are still phasing in with the with the great the scaling system. As far as uh, touching on Bruce's topic with the demand, we still are seeing quite a few patients that are hesitant to come in and have their procedures performed. But uh, our volume is our surgical volume is back to probably about 80, 90 percent, which is pretty good. We figured at this point. And we feel like in June, we'll get closer to, you know, 100%. Yeah. So let's talk about volume. So, Tom, you already mentioned that, surprisingly, you think oncology would not be impacted, right? These are emergencies. 
but you're seeing a drop. Maybe people are staying out in New York. Maybe they're getting their care elsewhere. Um, it's a combination of things, Steph. It's One is wanting to stay out of New York, and so we don't see the international people coming over, for instance. Um, the, the second piece is that the screening procedures that are being done in offices, whether it's in a standard orthopedic office or in a primary care office, they're not getting seen in a timely fashion. So unfortunately, patients are coming at a later stage in disease to us as opposed to early. But we're also seeing a higher conversion rate. So the patients that are coming really need a surgical intervention, if you will, as opposed to those that happened before. So, right. Uh, so, uh, Bruce, demand, what are you guys seeing? So, right now, both office and surgical volumes are around 90% are normal. And, you know, some of that's exhausting the backlog of people who got postponed or delayed. But there's still a subset of, of patients who you know, the message is, you know, why don't we wait till after the summer? Why don't we wait till July, see what's going to happen? I think the, mo- the more difficult question is, what's everybody predicting for Q3 and Q4? When our 40 million people still out of work, can people afford their out-of-pocket expense? You know, did people lose their benefits? And so we're trying to, in our projections, you know, probably predict a 10 to 15% decreased volume in Q3 and Q4, because not because of healthcare, but because of the economy. I may be wrong there, but I I just don't know. That's a really important question. In fact, we have a whole 45-minute segment dedicated to the economy with Kevin Bozick and uh, one of our professors from UC Berkeley, who is very well-versed in this. So really good question. You also sort of brought up the question of the patient perspective. I mean, we've been hearing that some of the drivers of people not coming to the hospital are like you said, potentially loss of job, loss of income, loss of insurance, fear of coming to the hospital. So I want to tackle those questions a little bit. Tom, you've been, I mean, you track you guys' data, you're in the thick of things. What's the chance of getting infected as a patient who is not infected coming to a hospital where they may have been treating COVID patients? Do you have a sense it's a very rare event? Should patients be concerned? Is there a reason to stratify patients into non-COVID hospitals, which is actually kind of my next question. But yeah, I, what's the I risk of coming in? I would say it's, it's extremely low. The risk is actually higher for the employees and particularly anesthesiologists and CRNAs than it is for others because early on we had 35% of our CRNAs out due to COVID. And so that really happens because of their workplace. Um, I think that the patients themselves, we have had some nosocomial spread, as I mentioned before, it is very rare. And since we've been very rigid as far as our employee PPE and our screening for employees, we've not had that issue. So I think we've learned to do it well. And once you do it really well and you know, and you, you cohort the COVID patients on particular wards and with particular staff who know how to disrobe, for instance, they have good ventilation, et cetera, in their areas, we don't have a problem. But I think it was, it was that learning process in learning how to do it well. And now I think it's very, very safe for patients in all locations. And as long as everybody wears masks, I think we're fine. And Bruce, are you seeing, uh, you had an experience at any of the hospitals, but also you were telling me earlier that you interface with approximately 99 other healthcare systems in the space as part of one of the groups you belong to. So what has been that experience? So our experience has been the two large hospital systems have tried to have facilities that don't care for COVID. So obviously our experience in North Carolina is much different than the experience in New York. So we have the luxury of being able to get COVID patients out of certain facilities or restrict them from certain facilities that can become 
elective surgical facilities. I mean, you know, you can't use the word COVID free unless you test everybody every day because you don't know who's there and who's asymptomatic. But I think trying to get patients who, you know, um, under investigation, get them tested. And then if there's any concern, you either get them out of that facility to another facility where they still can be cared for. But then you, it gives the patients the comfort for elective procedures that they're in a you know, that they're at less risk. We all know that the asymptomatic carrier is the one who's going to get them infected, probably not the known COVID patient because we take precautions. Most of the other independent groups, I'm part of a, you know, a, a group called the OrthoForum, which represents 99 of the large groups in the country. And so we all, we've been having weekly calls for the last eight, nine, 10 weeks and exchanging information. And we learned a lot from our folks in Seattle um, with the large group pro-alliance there. And, uh, and we're all sharing information. Everybody's around at the same point, with the exception of maybe New York and Detroit and Boston, some of the urban areas that got really became hotspots. Everybody else is pretty much approaching it in a similar manner. The ASC volumes are up because to the patient, the outpatient environment seems to be a safer place to them conceptually. Yeah. That, um, so well, we just covered the fact that it, you're right, it seems to be, but it, it probably isn't. Um, so probably don't we have we don't have any reason to think that in the context of our well screen hospitals with staff and PPE, there really doesn't sound like there's a major risk to the patient coming in, and we're, we're seeing that at UC as well. So second question around that is the patients think coming into the hospital taking care of it. I'm look, I'm thinking about costs. Is this people may have lost their job, income may be limited. Do they have uh, do we have a way to support or help patients make sure that they understand what their costs are coming out of these operations? Because if finances are problematic going into a, a recession, is this a responsibility we have or can we work with our um, insurance partners to have better clarity around the billing? I think we're going to have to change our mindset from a healthcare standpoint. I mean, you know, most places will demand, you know, the patient responsibility up front. Well, people don't aren't paying car payments, they're not paying house payments, they're not paying, they're deferring rent. I think healthcare needs to start thinking in similar manners, allow people to finance these expenses over a longer period of time. Well, we're exploring those ideas through some credit options with longer payback periods because we're going to have to. Because I, I truly am worried that people aren't going to be able to afford the out-of-pocket expense and they're going to delay care. And maybe in cases of cancer and cardiac and things like that, people's health is going to suffer. And so I think we need to be innovative and adopt some of the same policies that the auto industry has done and, you know, and the real estate and landlords are doing. Because I think the perception in the United States is going to be, I can defer my payment on everything um, until the economy gets. Tell me your thoughts about that. I would agree 100%. I don't think we as an institution are at the point yet where we can offer those kinds of alternatives. But I, I think that's the direction we all need to go in one form or another. Andy, Andy, you're CEO of a small group. The finances are not quite as flexible. What are your thoughts? Uh, I agree that those are key factors. And with our practice, we're trying to be more creative, come up with payment plans, help people out, because we know the hardship that everybody's going through at this point. Our employees are going through the same thing, and, and um, we're sensitive to that. So we're trying to be flexible and work with patients. Right. I think the message of us needing to understand the, the position our patients are going to come up with flexible plans is, is resonates very well. Thank you for sharing that. Another question that's more patient-centric is discharge. Many of our patients in San Francisco with steep hills, walk-ups, uh, a lot of people living alone, 
many of them would go to skilled nursing facilities for recovery after surgery. They just don't have the social infrastructure to be taken care of at home. Our skilled nursing facility is a safe place to discharge patients, uh, which are not the same as, as a nursing home. So let's be clear about that. Uh, Bruce, why don't you start? Well, I will say before COVID, you know, with a lot of the, the push that we've been doing into value-based care, we've been really trying to decrease our use of, uh, of SNFs. And, and I think we saw that with some of the programs and bundles and, and BPCI and BPCI Advanced. So we were already, it was already on our radar screen to, to navigate these patients with you know, frequent contact with patient navigators and try to get them home and use home health nursing so that we could avoid SNF really because of the cost, not because of safety. And so I, I think those trends are going to continue and they're going to accelerate. And I think some of the family's fears of they're going to equate a short uh, skilled nursing facility to, to nursing homes that had high, high COVID rates. So I think we are all are going to have to adopt some of the some of the things that we were adopting anyways. And I think it's going to accelerate us into these value-based care options that we're looking at anyways. Yeah, no, we're very low number two. Andy, thoughts on that? We're, we're doing bundling and we're uh, just just before COVID, we were moving in that direction to avoid uh, high cost of care and so forth and with BPCI as well. So we're doing the same things. Let me, uh, sorry, we're good. Um, the idea of reducing fixed costs. So, so many groups out there are small, large practices looking at a decreased volume of surgery needing to stay open, looking at recontracting everything from the lease on their buildings, rethinking investments in value-added technologies, looking at taking on loans from the SBA to support them in these times of trouble. What are your thoughts as uh, CEOs of uh, systems that need funding to keep the doors open? And how? What, what's it, what ideas you have around this? How to best respond? Maybe I'll let Andy go first because you, you, it's probably more cute there. Uh, we, we approached uh, you know our, our landlords, and we did get some rent relief uh, early on because we were envisioning you know the the budget constraints that we would have with the reduced volumes and. We also obtained a PPP loan from the SBA, and so we, we got that in late March. So that's been very helpful. And uh, we, we, we did receive some HHS uh, subsidies for stimulus payments as well, which have helped us get through you know, the, the lean times here. So all those things have been helpful. And you're going to need to get back to something close to normal within six months in order for that all to work out, or do you have a time frame? Well, I definitely agree with Bruce that, you know, we're, we're very concerned about the economy and people uh, having insurance and so forth and be able to, you know, financially afford care. And so that's a big question mark out there. So that's, we're, we're concerned about uh, Q3 and Q4 because of that. Yeah. Uh, Bruce. Yeah. So, so we took a bit of a unique approach to this. We, I was very concerned that if we pushed all of our expenses into Q3, Q4, and into 2021, that it was going to be very disheartening for the docs working as, as hard as they could, making less and less and less. And, and so we we adopted the policy that we're calling it the quarantine of Q2. And so we've been fortunate to get federal funding, but to really try to keep the expenses within Q2 and keep the deficit within Q2 so that the docs will feel the reward in Q3 and Q4 when they work as hard as they can work and see the benefits of it and, and truly take a hit. We prepared everybody literally to take no income in Q2. It's worked out better than that. You know, that we told the docs, don't expect to draw for the entire quarter. 
unless things turn around. And so we've been fortunate that we haven't had to go to those drastic extremes, but basically thinking of taking Q2 and financing it over time, but not pushing everything to Q3 and Q4, because that's when folks are going to be working hard, hopefully with economic recovery and recovery from, from COVID and things opening up. I just didn't want people to work hard and make less and less each quarter. Thank you. That's an interesting perspective. Uh, Tom, do you have any different system, yeah. but same idea? Yeah, similar ideas. I mean, we're looking at projections of of surgical volumes that are eighty five to ninety percent, depending on who you listen to for the uh, for the rest of the year. Um, so yeah, we're absolutely reducing costs. We've uh, used to run all of our operating rooms on Saturday. We've closed Saturdays for the next three months, and so that's a savings. Um, we've also reduced overtime, and we've had a hiring freeze. We are at a unique position. We're a very strong financial institution, but we're now facing some financial constraints. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll be continuing to work on that. My next line of discussion before we go to the Q&A session has to do with technology. That is what Digital Space Conference often likes to focus on. And in the, in the latest segment, we're going to go in to hear more about telemedicine and any other technologies that around that platform, those platforms. So specifically, I'd love to hear what your experience was around the, impl- the implementation of virtual care. At UCSF, I haven't done our numbers, we used to do, uh, I think it was 9,000 visits a day in person with about 2% virtual. And within a week, it went to about 6,000 visits per day, of which 60 to 70% were virtual. And then that tapered off as we reopened the clinics, and now it's it's dropping. It's still in that 20 to 30% range, but I want to talk about two things. Is how, what was your experience with the adoption of telemedicine tools? And secondly, where are you seeing it sort of level out as um, as we get into a uh, the option of coming into city visits? So let me start first. Let's start with Bruce first, because I already know your answer. We talked about this. Yeah, so um, our experience was prior to this, prior to COVID, we were talking about telehealth and trying to get it instituted, and our docs were resisting it a fair amount. And then within three days, we launched the telehealth platform and saw about seven, 8,000 patients virtually over the time frame to where 30 to 40% of our visits were, were, were video visits. And, you know, the platform wasn't ideal, but the docs adopted it. Now that we're open with full access, we're down to 2% of our visits are, are telehealth. And so I'm trying to get, you know, we have a task force looking at it, trying to get on a, on a more long-standing platform that will work better for us. Because I think that's going, it's going to be part of our practice and our lives forever. And we just have to figure out where it works the best. Some patients won't adopt it, but I think, you know, maybe screening, maybe post-op, maybe in our, in our value-based care patients, I think it's, it's there to stay. And so I don't want it to go to zero because then the docs will start resisting it again. They adopted it because they had to. And so we don't want them to fall back into their normal normal habits because especially surgeons, we're, we want to be comfortable. And they were comfortable seeing patients in the office and they got uncomfortable, but they didn't have a choice. Tom? Yeah, we're moving certainly to virtual care in particular because our Manhattan offices are very crowded you know, with patients. And so we've wanted to really socially distance. And so we're really trying to do at least 50% virtually if we can. And I think as Bruce mentioned, there was a lot of resistance. We hadn't done a whole lot prior. Now people are really accepting of, of doing more virtual visits. And I think that's, it's working out well. I do worry that they're going to sort of go back to the old methodologies as soon as they can. But uh, I'm hopeful that we can maintain at least some greater percentage of virtual visits, um, and we'll still be pushing for that. 
Andy. I'd say uh, a month ago, we were up in the 40 to 50% range, and we, we used uh, DoxyMe, and it was working pretty well, full telehealth visits, and uh, everybody was beginning to get comfortable. And But now that we're back, uh, you know, since the first week of May, doing elective cases and so forth, and volume's been picking up, and our schedules are opening up, the patients really are, are preferring to come in and uh, have a personal visit. We're seeing now probably maybe 10, 10 to 15% of our visits are, are telehealth now. So it's dropped quite a bit. But our call center still encourages telehealth visits, especially for follow-ups and for things like uh, MRI reviews and those types of uh, visits. I, I totally agree with that. I think we're going to see some uh, change in terms of the types of visits that we see the telehealth. It won't be across the board. The new patients still want to be seen, but we'll talk more about that in the next sessions as well. But I think this idea of identifying the appropriate type of visit for that kind of uh, modality. And then, of course, people want to think of telehealth as just the video, but there's so many other elements we can plug into that platform, especially sensors, remote monitoring, that will make those visits a lot more effective over time, I think will we'll see a, an improvement. So with that, I'm going to go to a couple of the questions that's come up with the audience. So in considering sensitivity tests, do you affirm, uh, actually, I'm going to skip, I'm not sure, you know, I'm going to ask whoever wrote that to reconfirm, I, I didn't understand the question, so I'll move on to the next one. <laughs> if you have open elective surgery, are you seeing patients not wanting to come due to COVID-19 concerns? If yes, when would you predict normal would return? So the question, I think we sort of touched upon it is COVID-19 has kept some people away. How long before you think people become comfortable with the level of the way we manage COVID in this country, that they will come back to the hospital irrespective of COVID no longer becomes an issue, becomes norm. Anybody want to take that? It's going to be a couple of months for us, I think. I think they're coming back, but it's beholden to us to build the trust in the community and the patients. We can only do that by having uh, appropriate protocols uh, for safety for the patients and reassuring them that it is a safe environment and it's gonna take a while to do that. When I say a couple months, it's just to relieve their fear, but I still think we're gonna be down over the course of the year, as Bruce mentioned. And is that economy? Probably mostly economy, but it's also fear. Um, We've gotta conquer the fear. Yeah, it may also be state by state, Depending on when states lift restrictions and go, you know, from, you know, phase two to phase three, I think, you know, some people are following that very closely and and they're really not going to make decisions until, you know, they feel like their region has been deemed safe. And, uh, you know, we know nothing's safe, but at least protected and past the risk of a big surge. Um, Last question. Will this, and I think this is the COVID-19 pandemic, help or hurt surgeon autonomy? This from Marty Nichols. Will the financial aspect of this event, I presume, push the surgeons back towards employment rather than independence? There's been a shift towards more employed uh, physicians over time. Are we looking at, uh, is this it's going to be more pressure on the private sector? Andy, why don't you take that one first? Well, it, um, definitely an event like this, you know, makes it very difficult for private practice. And uh, but on the other hand, we're, uh, we're we also feel that we're more nimble in some respects and and can take action more more quickly because we're smaller and and we have physician autonomy. So, will it have a, a huge impact? I don't really, I can't really say. You know, it's hard to hard to say. Uh, Bruce, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I, I think that you know. Time will tell on that one. I think the one thing that will happen from this is that we're going to see an acceleration of the shift 
from inpatient to outpatient surgery for electives to the lower cost setting, which will actually benefit the independent practices over the large hospital systems. You know, it, it's a trend that was that was you know ongoing, but I think it's been accelerated, and this this will probably kickstart it even further. Tell me any concluding yeah. remarks on that. I, I would just say that it's the financial pressures that will win out, and I think there are going to be a number of practices as well as systems that are probably going to be very financially challenged. And so the stronger systems and stronger private practices will win out. And I think it depends on your location and your and the financial state as to which is going to win in each location. Gentlemen, I, I want to thank you. Okay, thank you. I want to thank each of you for taking time to be with us today. We've had a terrific uh, audience participation with quite a few people uh, joining us. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck and be healthy, stay well. Thank you for all you're doing to keep our practices open and our doctors operating to take care of our patients. And with that, I'm going to uh, thank you all and see you soon, I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient. If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.